Oh, Bretto. What's up, MP? Damo just called. Yeah? He thinks there's going to be 100,000 people at the Wellness Summit. Oh, again? He thinks we're bigger than Michael Jackson, the Rolling Stones and the Beatles all put together. Damien Christoph has gone completely mad. Did you know he's made eight tonnes of forage? What? <laughs> and now he wants you and I to help him get rid of it. Oh, Damo. So, look, being the good friends that we are, we've asked him. You've been forced. Well, we've kind of twisted his arm to make him literally give his forage away to 100 lucky Wellness Summit attendees. So if you're ready to enrol for our signature two days of inspiration, education and empowerment and entertainment. What do you mean, MP? Australian Idol winner Wes Carr makes his Wellness Summit debut this year, Bretto. Wes Carr, you'll be guilty. So if you're ready to be entertained, head on over to thewellnesssummit.com and get four value bags of forage muesli or one bag each of paleo, muesli, bircher and porridge when you register. Now, all you need to do is register for this two-for-one special, bring a buddy, bring a friend, bring a family member or a colleague and then choose your forage selection, four muesli or four assorted and get four bags per attendee. That's eight bags per double pass. That's almost 250 bucks of forage for free when you register for the Wellness Summit on August 25-26 at the Collingwood Town Hall in Melbourne. That's 150 serves of breakfast. Almost six months of breakfast just for registering for the Wellness Summit. Well, it's first in best dressed. These 100 tickets are only available until June 18 or until sold out. All the details of this special offer, all the topics, featured speakers and more are over at thewellnesssummit.com. Thanks for making eight tons of forage, Damo. The Real Food Reel is proudly sponsored by Bear Blends. Bear Blends are dedicated to producing the healthiest protein powders and unique nutritional powders. They use only natural and organic whole foods and all of their products are non-GMO and free of artificial flavors, colors and sweeteners. My personal new favorite is their vanilla and coconut plant protein. Visit bearblends.com.au to learn more and check out their gorgeous recipe inspo over on Instagram at bearblends. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness and optimizing your health, metabolism and longevity. While you're tuning in to today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In episode 178 of The Real Food Real, we are joined by Katie Pettuccini from Holistic Endurance to explore gender differences and how to optimize training and racing. You will learn the key differences, including hormonal changes, fasting, changes in thermoregulation, 
and peak performance age. We discuss the female hormone cycle and how to prioritize nutrition, intensity, and overall programming. We also explore male hormone levels and how to keep the balance for health, performance, and longevity. Hi, Katie, and welcome back to the show. Thank you, Steph. I'm excited about this topic because it's a big one. Yeah, absolutely. So gender differences in training, like I think it's a really important conversation for us to have. Um, But yeah, I think I might like hand it straight over to you to touch on why um, you and I are really excited to share this topic with the crew. Yeah, I think one, it's driven my entire coaching focus and I'd say it's what got me into coaching full-time you know originally looking after athletes and programming was a bit of a hobby on the side of my uh, day-to-day job and now it's what I do full-time and my interest came from this gender difference that I was noticing and in terms of that programming and nutrition and all these different elements needed to be tweaked for females and males and a blanket approach wasn't working. It wasn't working for me and it wasn't working for a lot of people around me and that sparked my interest and I started to do a bit more research and then conducted a survey of endurance athletes, including professionals, to get a better picture to see if my suspicions were were true uh, in terms of were many athletes struggling as much as I was with the conventional approach of um, what the guys do, women do, and the same should work for all? Uh, and what I found was that that, that definitely wasn't the case. Um, it wasn't working for many athletes, and women in particular were experiencing lots of difficulty in terms of performance um, and other symptoms to do with their hormones as well as their performance. Um, sometimes unknowingly and then for for men there are you know the hormone word is still applicable Uh, it's there's still some really important considerations for longevity of male performance Uh, they're not excluded from this conversation of talking about gender differences and hormones and and life cycles and life stages I think it's really easy though to perhaps fall in a trap conversationally of feeling hard done by or that's the general term or there's a lot of whinging about hormones or uh, as females, you know, it's it's uh, so hard and it's so difficult and um, we are less than. And I, I feel it's really important to highlight that that doesn't have to be the case and isn't the case. It's not about what we're pointing out today isn't to depict something as good, bad, better, worse, advantageous, uh, etc. It's just about awareness of the areas in which uh, males and females are different and how each gender needs to respect that and harness it for longevity, general wellness, their performance and uh, for some fertility as well. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously there are differences, but I think it's the knowledge that you can have about definitely hormones, but absolutely your own body to to optimize things. And it might be a little bit different for women because we have those four seasons in one month, but yeah, you can still optimize that. 
Oh, 100%. And that's what's driven my whole profession, uh, to be honest. And I've seen fantastic results with athletes in terms of, yeah, there's the performance metrics and improvements, but a general uh, improvement in joy and satisfaction from performance and sport because they're not fighting their body so much once they understand it and can embrace those ebbs and flows of, of seasons, as you put it. Um, there's this more relaxed approach um, an intuitive approach to just go with the flow, literally. Mm, mm. Um, and not compare, um, say, even to for women to compare um, to their 15-year-old self or uh, to compare to someone that's in their 40s, 50s. Like we can't compare. It's all different stages of life and that um, comparison is, is the thief of joy is also a really good point for today's conversation uh, I don't think we should be benchmarking ourselves um, gender versus gender it really needs to be about our individual performance and metrics and progression um, rather than worrying about where everyone else is and what they're doing um, so next time you're in a group session you know focus on what's relative and relevant to you and not worry about what everyone else is doing around you yeah, absolutely. And learning a little bit more about your body and how that looks like across the month and what your life adaptations can be. Like it's going to be, which we'll talk about today, obviously training, um, but adaptations in your energy requirements, your macronutrient requirements, your meal frequency. And so this is where we start to like training with nutrition, we get away from a cookie cutter approach, which, is, which I think is really important. Yeah, so there needs to be a individualized approach to training, individualized approach to nutrition um, and hydration, which we might get time to talk about today. Um, obviously, the most obvious difference is the hormone factor between men and women. Mm. Um, and then within women, you've got pre puberty, during puberty and menstruating women and perimenopause and menopause. And so there's all these different cycles of life to consider. Um, I'm sure you can link listeners to the various podcasts we've recorded before this that go into the specifics of menstrual cycle phases um, and peri and post menopause. And I think the main thing to cover off for the purpose of today's conversation is you know, women have these months, if they're menstruating, they have the fluctuating um, hormones throughout a month and with that, training needs to be adjusted and adapted to respect those changes and get the most out of one's body. Whereas if you, we're programming for a male athlete, that same consideration doesn't apply. But we do need to consider, say, their testosterone levels for longevity, health uh, and optimal wellness and energy. Uh, so it's just, it's still a focus on hormones, but it's a different focus. Yeah, definitely. And just to clarify with women, obviously when you've got a menstrual cycle, it's quite obvious, you know, when the follicular phase is, which is the first half of the cycle before ovulation, and then where the luteal phase is, which is that second half. But even if you're not menstruating, you're still having the hormonal fluctuations across the month. So I think, you know, there's some other signs and symptoms that you'll need to pay attention to 
because you, you still need to be programming your training around what your hormones are doing, as well as identifying the reason um, why you're not having a menstrual cycle if you're of the, the um, menstruating age. Yeah, so you're talking about irregular cycles and amenorrhea. Yeah. In that case, yeah, absolutely. There's still hormone fluctuations and so forth. And it, when an athlete comes to me and say has irregular cycles or they haven't had a, a menstrual uh, period for, a, say, a prolonged period of time of three to six months, the standard approach of what you and I have spoken about at length on the show and in my ebook. Um, doesn't apply, but we can still pay attention to symptoms, as you mentioned, to modify the training to encourage that menstrual cycle to, to come back or be more regular. Um, I had a scenario with uh, an athlete recently, you know, they were in a, a peak phase for a very key race and there just wasn't room to, uh, say, back everything off and... and um, do what we would do for hormone balance, say in an off season or base phase. Uh, but what we did do was structure some strategic days off and lower intensity, low aerobic uh, to help encourage that ovulation and therefore um, menstrual cycle as well. And yeah, they did end up getting a cycle back, which was pretty remarkable considering their um, peak phase for that event. Um, so there are things you can do, and same, I'm sure you've seen it with nutritional factors, um, things you can do to tweak to make sure that menstrual cycle regularity comes back. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a, a big, really important goal, slightly different from obviously today's topic. So I absolutely will put um, links to previous podcasts in the show notes. So if you're definitely interested in learning more about that, which you absolutely should be, because it's really important that your menstrual cycle does come back online if it's um, disappeared for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. So jump um, into the show notes to get some um, older episodes. But let's keep talking about the the differences between males and females. So just sort of broadly for context, does it mean that a woman would necessarily have like less intensity across a month because she does have those hormonal fluctuations that are more significantly required to be programmed around? Uh, again, it's so individual. So let's, if I use a blanket of um, talking about athletes male and female that are well don't have injuries and don't have um say thyroid or adrenal dysfunction um then the answer would be yes um we would naturally have a little bit less intensity for females to allow for ovulation and premenstrual phase um to keep the hormones in balance and lessen uh hormone side effects no, sorry, not side effects, symptoms of like PMS and fatigue and brain fog and poor recovery and so forth. Um, so naturally over a month that would happen. But um, for, for male athletes, we would still have adaptation with days off and lower intensity. But the importance in a well athlete is less than for a female menstruating athlete, i.e. they can get away with it a little bit more. Intensity. Yes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, now, that intensity is definitely relative. This goes for both genders, but males need to 
make sure they're focusing on harnessing their testosterone and as they age, ensuring that that doesn't decline because that's certainly correlated to poor, well, declining performance and poor recovery. And so when it comes to intensity, we're looking for more polarised style efforts, uh, which would be from 20 seconds to three minutes of high intensity zone four with prolonged recovery uh, of a, at zone two or aerobic. That's what's going to um, lift testosterone levels more so than, say, a 20-minute all-out ball-busting workout. Um, so there's still consideration there for guys in intensity. Like it's not like they can just go and do, uh, get away with, um, say, 50% of their week at zone three or above, in my opinion. I know many conventional programs might work out that way. Unfortunately, I've seen the fallout of that and there's only so long that the body can sustain that level of intensity and oxidative stress. Yeah, 100%. And hopefully all our listeners are across um, Phil Maffetone's work and the MAF, MAF method, um, which is obviously one of the many reasons why we follow that protocol. So let's, let's keep talking about the main gender differences. So where to next? So we've covered off the menstrual cycle and then there's testosterone. And women still have testosterone, just at a lesser amount than our our male counterparts, uh, it still needs to be harnessed and looked after because you'll have a similar impact in women in that with low testosterone, it's poor recovery, low energy and low libido. Um, so that still needs to be a factor. Um, then there's the, the differences with nutrition. So within that blanket, the key differences I see and notice are their response to fasting or the appropriateness of fasting. There's protein synthesis and the relationship of estrogen and fat utilisation, which is your expertise for sure. So we can certainly go um, back and forth between us in terms of those key elements. But with the, the fasting we have similar opinions here, but um, I think, again, men, male athletes can thrive with consistent fasting if done correctly. Again, if I'm personally talking about an athlete that doesn't have adrenal dysfunction, thyroid dysfunction or any um, illness or immunity issues that they're battling. So we're talking about a well male athlete, I, I would support some fasting and then for female athletes it would be depending on what's happening in their cycle and and definitely being more cautious and probably not doing it as frequently um what are your thoughts with fasting and female versus male athletes yeah i generally find that males could essentially do like a 16 8 almost every single day as long as they were being intuitive and timing their nutrients around training and looking after their adrenals like again obviously that wellness picture whereas females of menstruating age generally thrive doing it a couple of days a week so that's that obviously 16 8 where it's a 16 hour overnight fast with an eight hour eating window um, but it's really important to be intuitive that it's not 
you know, textbook that it must be two days every week, especially as we move through ovulation. If we are feeling um, a little bit more fatigued or if we're moving into the start of menstruation where for a lot of people that is where they, they feel they're hungriest. So I don't think we should set up this strict plan around fasting at the detriment of our intuition and paying attention to our body's signals with with females like we naturally are already eating less right so usually <laughs> um and we are generally eating a lot less protein than than men and if we're fasting and only eating two meals on a day we're obviously eating again less protein so what we've got is less available amino acids and we need amino acids to activate our estrogen receptors and that's a really important part of fertility definitely um but also fat burning because we're used to i think we're used to talking about estrogen in a negative sense with um it being like a fat storage hormone as it is so regularly spoken about but then how does it make sense that when your estrogen drops after menopause, you're often putting on body fat? Mm -hmm. So what we know, obviously, there are three types of estrogen, but one in um, particular, estradiol, can trigger an increase in fat storage. That's why we obviously want to make sure that our hormones are in balance. But we actually need estrogen to regulate our metabolic processes. So. If your estrogen's too low, you can definitely be um, feeling hungry and storing body fat. So that's something we need to be mindful of when we talk about fasting because obviously the nutrients that you get will determine your overall health and wellness. And if you're fasting too much, your hormones will suffer because essentially <laughs> if there's no food available, you're not in uh, optimal health status to be making babies, right? So your body develops that protective mechanism. Yeah, so ensuring um, that you periodise your fasting, much like we recommend periodising your training uh, around that menstrual cycle. Yeah, because obviously when you fast as well, the diet can also be quite, or the nutrition plan could be quite low in energy. And from a metabolic process, you know, small amounts of caloric restriction can be healthy and why fasting can be so beneficial. But if, you know, you're not getting enough energy to support your training and if then you're too lean, that's a reproductive disadvantage. So your body will be pretty um, switched on to things like that. And that's obviously a big part of the process of amenorrhea because your body's in, in tune to the threat of essentially famine, right? So it changes your fertility um, from an evolutionary perspective. Yeah, and I think important to note that I haven't personally found fasting working for athletes, say, um, during a peak build, particularly if they're doing it for the first time and it's not something that their body is adapt to. Um, I find that getting fat adapted and working on metabolism is something to do off-season and in the base phase when predominant um, training time is at math or below. Um, doing fasting plus extended intensity um, I find is a recipe for fatigue and poor recovery and just it, it's hard to do right um, without much diligence so I would warn against that personally 
Yeah. Yeah. It's, we always talk about fasting in the context of intensity and that very much relates to what part of your build you're in. So off season's great because you're usually doing all, if not, you know, most math training. So there's very little glycolytic exercise or, or sessions being performed. So that is a really good time to obviously dial in and your fat burning capacity because fat burns in the presence of oxygen, right? And that's your aerobic or low intensity training. So yeah, I completely agree with you. And even sort of day to day when I talk to a client about 16-8 or a version of intermittent fasting that works for them, I'm very clear to say, all right, well, don't do it on a, on a day or a morning where you've got a high intensity session because we want to make sure we are refueling within the hour after a session like that. And for a lot of people, you know, the fasting would obviously take them through to mid-morning or even lunchtime on empty. So that needs to fit in around the aerobic or a yoga or even a rest day. Yeah, and as we said, you know, male athletes can tend to get away with a little bit more fasting. Have you seen uh, much evidence within your clinic of male athletes being able to do 16-8 or a version of intermittent fasting while in a key build with intensity? Yeah, I think it. I think it's multifactorial. Like, obviously, fasting is a degree of a stressor, and if someone's got you know, far too much stress in their life, whether it's, you know, family work, financial, maybe it's, you know, too much alcohol or a bit busy um, social life or lack of sleep, you know, then obviously there's so many variables that are going to be sort of setting them up for fasting to not be not as successful, Mm. which is why I think it's important to be able to be intuitive. In general, like none of my clients would be doing it like and fasting after a high intensity session. But um, definitely many of them are thriving, even if it is like a longer session, like an LSD session um, for a couple of hours and then coming back and not having, you know, that breakfast or not eating until 16 hours after their meal the night before, that definitely works really, really well. But obviously that's not intensity related, but duration at a low intensity is certainly possible in the right conditions. Yeah, cool. So summarising the the fasting conversation um, can be suitable for both, but both genders still need to put parameters in place to make sure they do it in a way that's sustainable and not going to uh, impact performance and overall hormone health. Yeah, definitely. I mean, for females, it's definitely a little bit more multifactorial. Like one other thing on fasting, we know that one of the key benefits of fasting is to lower insulin-like growth factor, so IGF-1, and that that's seen, you know, obviously insulin we see with high carbohydrates or carbohydrate intolerance. We see it with someone that's carrying too much body fat or in that sort of metabolic dysfunction picture. So, you know, fasting can lower IGF-1, and that's a really important health strategy from a that adaptation point of view, but absolutely from a lowering inflammation and lowering our risk of chronic disease. But see, IGF-1 for women is what actually triggers the uh, lining of the uterine wall to thicken, which is a huge part of that reproductive cycle. So if our IGF is 
too low, then that's where we start to see it impact our menstrual cycle. And a lot of women and probably people listening to the show today might have a bit of a light bulb going off right now because when it's it's a Goldilocks scenario, right? We don't want to drive that IGF one too low because we'll we'll pay for it hormonally. So you can do blood tests. Um, so next time you go and get your six month or your annual review, definitely look at the, the IGF one levels and make sure they're optimal so that you're supporting your metabolic go- goals, but also your hormones and for those of, um, you know, menstruating age, your fertility goals. Um, do you, want, you touched on estrogen and fat utilization <clears throat> difference there. Do you want to go further into that? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So when it comes to appetite and definitely balancing out your energy requirements, estrogen works in a number of different ways, but we know in the brain, estrogens actually modify the signals that keep you full or hungry. So obviously estrogen balance is there really important to control your appetite. So if your estrogen's not in balance, then it can really affect your natural appetite signals. So for some people, you know, that obviously can be part of the, the insatiable hunger that they can experience at, at parts of the menstrual cycle when we get those peaks in estrogen. Um, but if your estrogen goes too low, then you can also be really hungry and eating too much um, energy, but obviously most of the time we're getting that quick, immediate energy from carbohydrates. So then it becomes really hard to be working on your metabolic flexibility and continuing to teach your body to burn fat for fuel. Yeah, which is why we like the approach of um, the reduced volume and intensity around the menstrual cycle to help match that estrogen fluctuation as well. Um, mm. So there's less fighting with the body for sure. Yeah, for sure. um, In that final piece of the nutritional differences between men and women, the protein synthesis, tongue time. Um, I'd like, can can you speak to that a little bit more in detail, um, being the nutrition nerd that you are? Yeah, well, I've, I've sort of touched on it before in terms of the amino acids that are required. So I think that's definitely a big part of it. Um, so, you know, we've got to make sure we're eating enough protein to have those amino acids, which is, you know, definitely a critical part of the building blocks of recovery, of course. Um, but from a fertility point of view, We need those amino acids um, as part of the building blocks of our hormones. And I think that, you know, again, we're looking at the differences from from males and females, but the building blocks of recovery is, is the key here when it comes to training. So I think men by default are definitely eating more protein and that doesn't mean they're absorbing it if they're, if they're not optimizing their gut health, but that's definitely a whole another conversation. Um, I just think, yeah, the, the amino acids are exactly what we need to support our estrogen levels and also our IGF one, as I mentioned. Yeah. So with the gender difference of, of protein requirements, like what does that protein requirement difference look like from male to female? Yeah, well, we normally work off 
sort of percentages per day, right? And like, it's pretty hard to to talk about blanket numbers. um, But just as a really rough guide, if a female is on a rest day and she's consuming somewhere between, you know, 15 or 1700 calories a day, our recommendations are 20% protein. So if we look at the numbers there, 20% of 1500, um, my math isn't my strong point, but um, you know, I'll or if it's, what's that? Sorry, I'll do it for you. Yeah. <laughs> no. Um, uh, it's eighty to one hundred grams a day usually, but I just want to make sure. Um, yeah, so probably between seventy-five and a hundred grams of protein a day for a female. Um, but you know, when we talk about percentage, it's obviously then relative to the total volume of food that you eat. So if you're fasting and your calories are down at 1,200 a day, that's obviously going to look like a very different um, grams of protein a day. Does that make sense? Because obviously it's still 20% of an overall intake, so there could be a difference of 60 grams of protein a day or up to 100 grams of protein a day. So I just did the maths on, say, um, let's say a male's resting metabolic need for the day is 2,500. And for the female, we worked off 1,500. And 25% for the female works out to 75 grams Mm -hmm. of protein. And 20% for the male is 125 grams of protein. Yeah. So there's obviously going to be a a relative difference there. And that's... Um, Yeah, because I find I often get asked, like, uh, when uh, friends or couples are serving up food, it's like, how different should my meal look to my wife, husband, boyfriend, girlfriend? Um, I don't, yeah, I don't think there's enough consideration or thought about just that simple mass. Mm. That we yeah. So that's a good point to touch on. And that's obviously the total for the day, which then needs to be considered in the sense of how many meals. So, you know, normal is three meals a day, but definitely, as we know, the men are going to be more often than not fasting more. So for some that can look like two meals a day. So there's just some different considerations there to, to, to see if it's practical to get that much protein in, in two meals, um, which is we normally go off the palm, right? So the, that's then different between men and women. Um, but as a rough guide, you know, it's usually about 120 grams raw weight of like if we're talking about an animal protein and for men it's 150, but it could be up to 180 grams raw weight. So that's per meal. So that's obviously quite different, which then obviously changes the number of amino acids that are available and their relevance for, you know, hormonal production and and balancing out IGF-1. Okay, and we kind of brushed over it, but we point out another gender difference is difference in terms of that basal metabolic rate is mm. higher in usually as a byproduct of them having a higher percentage of muscle mass uh, genetically, and that's where personalized nutrition plans come into it. For each gender, they need to be based off that individual metabolism or basal rate. Um, yeah. Yeah, it could be the difference of a thousand calories a day, or even more if the, if the male is like very active, because obviously your energy yeah, requirements, yeah, your energy yeah. requirements are relative to your output. So that's um, 
that's another important consideration and it, it can be definitely when we're talking about meal prep or the scenario that you mentioned before where it's dinner time and you're sitting down to have a meal together you've got to keep that in mind and people are resistant to things like my fitness pal or easy diet diet diary but you know i'm a big fan of that initial education and awareness around what your portions look like. So then by default, you'll know how to build your plate and you'll be making sure that you're getting enough food, but obviously not overeating at the same time. Yeah. And I'm one of those people, like I'm terrible. I'm quite resistant to the tracking in my fitness belt, but um, doing some example days to get a, uh, an overall picture rather than like locking myself into tracking it every day for 30 days is much more doable. Than, oh, for sure. Uh, you'll wrap my head around for sure. All right, should we go on to our next key gender difference? Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to talk about sweat rate and mm. heat adaptation. Um, sweat, rate, sweat testing is something we're doing uh, as a new service at Holistic Endurance, but I've had uh, over the years athletes um, do sweat testing for performance reasons to make sure that their hydration plan is suitable for their race. Um, so the sweat testing itself is a relatively new thing for me, but the results in implementing isn't. And what I've seen and been able to implement um, since diving into looking at gender differences is respect to um, the difference in sweat rate and heat adaptation for males to females. And within females, the difference from a menstruating female versus a female on a say, on oral contraceptive and what type of oral contraceptive and then the different um, postmenopausal as well. So there's all these different subgroups, which is, again, just bringing people's attention to individualising your race plan and, and day-to-day training and hydration is so important. And just because it was true for you five years ago doesn't mean it might be true for you now. So I think people need to know that those hydration plans should change and adapt. Um, so speaking to the differences within females um, when you there are you've got your fluctuating estrogen hormones throughout the month and with the um, change in hormone level sweat rate can be reduced particularly postmenopausal so therefore your thirst mechanism um, is ineffective and therefore for you're going to have some trouble with um, reducing core temperature and cooling. And so for a postmenopausal hydration strategy, I recommend using timer. Um, so every 15 minutes, it's just a given that you sip on your electrolyte or fluid rather than being intuitive and, and trusting that thirst mechanism that you might have been able to do um, premenopausal. So that's yeah, an important yeah, I totally agree. I don't think many people are aware of that. So postmenopausal, you know, your in general, like your signals are lower. So I think that can definitely lead to a decreased awareness or structure around the consumption of fluids in, in training and racing and definitely day-to-day. But you still need to look at your core body temperature and, and your hydration requirements, which are huge for general health and performance. Yeah, I mean, I can an athlete can do the perfect training build, get even get the nutrition right, and get it all right, tick 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 tick. But if this one element isn't addressed on race day, it can be the end of them. Mm. Um, cramping and um, unable to sustain pace, 
um, just basically dumping their, their sodium. It's where we get those um, white patches on the kicks and um, a run turns into a shuffle. Mm. And for menstruating women in that high hormone phase and second phase of the menstrual cycle, the um, blood flow is lower and results in a lower blood plasma volume overall. So heat mm. tolerance is impaired. So you might notice you get more, you feel hotter or you get sweatier in that second phase of the cycle. Um, and then the increase in estrogen through this phase also impacts your sodium levels, increasing your vulnerability to hyponatremia. So again, in that high hormone phase is, I would say, if you're going to be racing is when you need to be even more astute to um, electrolyte balance. And if you're going to do sweat testing, it is something that's come up as a pattern for you that you struggle with, um, do the test in that stage of your hormone cycle. Um, otherwise, you could get a very different result. Uh, and that's something I want to do with athletes moving forward is like look at the difference um, at different stages of their, their cycle um, for them individually. I think it's going to be really interesting. Yeah, well, it's actually going to be different across the whole month, really, if we look at the fluctuations. Because mm -hmm. obviously we have that estrogen fluctuation pre-ovulation, the progesterone fluctuation pre-menstruation, like so... Saying high hormone phase, I think, is dependent on what hormone we're talking about and which do you think is the most influential? Is it um, progesterone? Mm, I couldn't say, to be honest. I mm. look at both. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure if I dove more into the research, I could give you an answer, but no, not off the top of my head. I, I don't can have one or the other that I think is more important. I like to consider both. Mm. Um, Obviously, progesterone and its impact on hyponatremia from a, a health and, like, safety point of view, that hyponatremia can be quite dangerous, um, then I guess you might prioritise that. But no, not sure. Yeah, interesting. But it would be a really fascinating experiment to look at your own individual needs across, you know, the follicular and luteal phases of the cycle and if ovulation was different and and not to make it complicated, but as an awareness point of view, that would be something to even just start with some, you know, some trial and error in training first. Definitely. Yeah, you don't have to do the sweat testing. You can certainly notice um say the sweat patches or the white crustiness on your on your kit um you can notice your level um like the color of your, your urination throughout the day post a workout you can also get pee sticks um urinary test strips from the chemist and i've got an article on how to do this um you simply pee in a jar stick a stick in the jar and it gives you some ratings of hydration um protein breakdown ketones and a bunch of other metrics to tell you um how you have recovered from a given session um so without doing sweat testing that's an easier one to do at home to see if your current levels of hydration are cutting it um often i would say uh i'm like i don't Deep. I don't hydrate naturally. I have to make a really considered effort to make sure I have enough fluid and electrolytes each day because my default thirst definitely doesn't um, bring those levels up enough and it's like easy to slip into that chronic dehydration as soon as you start training and, and sweating 
more and I'm a big advocate, I know you are too, of adding lemon and say Himalayan salt to our water uh, each day irrespective of training. And then for your higher intensity or high volume sessions, you might introduce your your sports electrolytes like a shots tab or a, a nun tab or similar that doesn't have um, sugar and, and carbohydrates. So you're getting pure electrolyte balance through your workouts. Yeah, I think that's really important advice. And just to remember, it's all trainable, right? So essentially we know that when you're new to LCHF or if you're doing a period of keto for a metabolic reset, then your, you know, your liver can be definitely dumping more sodium. So that obviously increases your requirements. The same can be said for the start of a season um, or the start of a summer season, I should say. But your body's pretty clever, right? It's got these inbuilt mechanisms that, that, uh, that adapt and that can definitely be trainable by the conditions that you train in. So that's another reason why it's important to pay attention to because it's going to change through the adaptation and through the seasons and that applies to both sexes. Yes, it absolutely does. And they're putting in a heat protocol um, pre-key race can be one part or it's just changing your hydration strategy. Um, And then just from the test results I've had across my athletes, um, you know, with Speaking generally, males having a greater surface area um, and their genetic predisposition, their sweat volume and sweat rate and sodium loss is generally higher as well. Um, So that's the key difference between men and women. With men, it's a bit higher and then with women, it's fluctuating and we need to respect that um, and plan for it as well. And then I did mention the, the oral contraceptive conversation, which is a big one. But for those um, taking synthetic hormones, depending on the type of contraceptive pill, you are going to technically be um, at a higher hormone phase throughout the entire quote-unquote cycle, um, except for when you're on the the sugar pills if you take them, Um, which would mean we put in that um, same requirement for a menstruating female for that high hormone phase at the second half of their cycle um so needing higher electrolytes um during that phase does that make sense so we need more electrolytes for the entire time we're taking the oral contraceptive pill until we move on to the sugar pills yes yeah yeah cool Um, and same thing the thirst mechanism might be inhibited as well depending on the individual but on the type um, of pill. Mm. yeah and type of pill so there's the monophasic biphasic etc um so when talking doing sweat testing or talking to your coach or nutritionist make sure you cover off those factors because it might change your protocol is the key message yeah for sure all right and our third and final sort of subtopic is peak performance age. So what do you notice there between the genders? Yeah, um, I think this needs to be considered more than it is in terms of the pathway to professional athletic development. You know, peak age for males is usually around 19 years old and peak age for females is usually 25 Um, So it's five to six years later, but girls and boys of the junior age are being put through the same pathway 
and expectations. And I think the, the crucial pubic age, pubescent age, um, needs to be respected and harnessed. And often uh, junior athletes that are on the pathway to high performance, they end up in a you know, elite training schedule that's not conducive to one, initiating puberty and two, hormone balance once they do go through puberty. Um, so I think there needs to be consideration with the junior high performance pathway and age group um, that's applicable across the board really, um, just more susceptible at that elite level because of the amount of training and, and the pressure and the intensity. And so I think if that respect can be given with the difference between genders, then the, the model and the coaches at that level can have different expectations of the age that their athletes may peak. Um, and for female athletes around that 16 years old, focus on their longevity rather than having them peak like their male com- um, comrades at 19 it's like oh, what, what do I need to do to ensure this athlete peaks at between say 23 25 um, which would make the pathway look quite different so different I mean that's the, obviously the the start of the peak performance window at about 25 that's you know that's a huge six years of you know potential hormonal dysfunction adrenal problems and a whole host of issues if someone's really sort of driving this female athlete to perform when her body's not going to be ready for a number of years. Yeah, I've, I've now spoken on my podcast with two professional um, and Olympic level athletes who did experience that mm. um, and would like to see that change in the future, uh, that there's more respect to juniors and their menstrual cycle and puberty to allow for longevity and not push a peak performance when uh, they're not perhaps designed already or if they just allowed one more year. It could be the difference between um, not getting stress fractures every three months and mm-hmm. injuries or fertility ten- issues 10 years later. Um, you know, it's a, it's a big issue and a, a big conversation. Um, but once, you know, that peak performance age is reached, it does remain pretty stable um, for a number of years. And so for peak performances for Um, men, as they start to decline, it's around 39. That's a a generalisation. Obviously, if you look after your health and your gut and your testosterone and your stress, you're going to extend that peak performance age. Um, And then for females, we start to see a slight dip around age 55, again, generalisation of menopause, but it doesn't mean that that dip cannot then improve postmenopausal. Again, if that... Uh, woman's body is looked after with a uh, and their training uh, program looks different as well and their nutrition looks different and their hydration looks different there's no reason that those peak performances can't come back and I've definitely seen that and I think if you look at uh, say age group times in half Ironman and Ironman in Kona there's there's a slight dip, again, um, generalising across the age groups between 50 and 55, and then they come back, uh, which is super interesting. So it, it can be done. It doesn't have to be over. 
Yeah, totally. But it's, again, just the considerations of the differences across the life cycle of an athlete. I think it's about having the the knowledge and the support to have the strategies that can be helpful for you. And, you know, obviously having a company or a, a coach like Holistic Endurance is really, really helpful. So those considerations are part of your education process as an athlete and factored into your training program so that you're not on your own trying to navigate hormones for the first time in your life when it can be a little bit challenging because we're simply not taught this. No, not at all. Um, And I think, yeah, if we can give more respect to the changes and not compare to um, ourselves 10 years ago and what worked for us then and just focus on the now, um, we can decrease the level of frustration and uh, stress that athletes incur when those performances do start to decline um, and not see it as a given and, and step up and go, okay, well, I'm noticing this. What do I need to do differently? What do I need to learn about my body to harness it and achieve that um, performance? Yeah, for sure. Beautiful message. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us again today, Katie. We'll pop heaps of juicy information, including previous podcasts and some amazing education articles that you've written in the show notes. So definitely head there now, team. And thanks again, Katie, for coming on The Real Food Real. Thank you, Steph. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favor? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Reel. This year, the Wellness Summit returns. What is the ramifications for you if you continue to not know where your food is coming from and not make a hard stand about what you're consuming? Back in 1992, I didn't know how to cook. In fact, I ate really poorly as many of you know. But I now love it so much that when I go to prepare something, it becomes magical. Don't want you to be stuck in the the crap that's happening. Know it, yes. Be aware of it, yes. But bring your vibration up so that we can vibrate at a higher level and collectively we might be able to bring everybody up to make those changes. I love preparing it. I know that everyone who's eating it absolutely loves it. Even the bits that they don't want to eat, they love eating them because I love making them. Does that make sense? Cindy O'Meara and Damien Christoph feature at the 2018 Wellness Summit. Bigger and better than ever. Tickets on sale Friday, May 4 at thewellnesssummit.com. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.